Letty. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about educating ourselves and organizing around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. So we have a guest today, uh, David Schwartzman. Some of the social media had his son on it, Peter Schwartzman. We hope to get him in the future. Uh, and I'll get to him, to David, in a minute. I uh, just want to say a few words about really the dismal situation that we're in and just briefly go over five crises we face. One of them is democracy. And we just had astounding news this week that, you know, Trump and the Republicans uh, were really trying to do a coup. Uh, they drafted executive orders to seize the voting machines and steal the election. And uh, then yesterday, the Republican National Committee said the rioters at the National Capitol, some of whom were engaged in violent assaults, are being persecuted for engaging in what the Republican National Committee called, quote, legitimate political discourse, end quote. Um, you have this guy that's likely to be the next Michigan speaker of their uh, lower house uh, saying recently that uh, his people should bring guns to the polling places and be prepared to use them. And, you know, we got these far right militias, but we have a very uh, well armed base to the Republican Party that seems to like not care what the vote is. They just want to get the power. So uh, in the states, the Republicans are making it harder to vote. But what's worse is they're taking over the administration of elections so they can steal elections. And this is, we haven't anything like this since the uh, old Democrats under the slogan of white supremacy violently overthrew the reconstruction governments, uh, you know, what, 150 years ago. So that's serious. But meanwhile, the Democrats have failed and they don't have a plan to revive these uh, bills for voting rights and election protection. They seem to be resigned to making it a campaign message rather than mobilizing to try to get this legislation passed. And meanwhile, they're making ballot access for the Green Party. And party suppression is a form of voter suppression. You know, voting rights should include the right of candidates' access to the ballot as well as voter access to the ballot. So voters can vote for who they want. So I think Greens have got to make inclusive democracy. I think that's the slogan we should use, a top issue which means not only easy access to the ballots and protecting our elections from Republican efforts to steal them, but also bills for fair ballot access, ranked choice voting for executive offices, and proportional representation for legislative bodies. And this is something we can, these are issues, uh, particularly RCV and proportional representation, we can move at every level, local, state, and federal. Fair ballot access, we can do at the state and the federal level. Um, and Greens in this upcoming election and in our movement work should be shaming and putting both parties on the defensive because they're not defending democracy. So that's one crisis. And we got this Ukraine crisis. And I think the solution is clear. Uh, the U.S. should be supporting the Normandy format where France, Germany, Russia and the Ukraine have been engaged in negotiating originally the Minsk II Accords. And they just had a meeting on January 26th, where they reaffirmed their commitment. Um, so the U.S. should stop saber-rattling and support these negotiations. The political solution 
that Minsk outlined is, is clear that, well, beyond Minsk, it, it, U.S. NATO should agree that it, they're not going to admit Georgia and Ukraine uh, into the NATO military alliance, give Russia some security uh, guarantees. And in return, Russia should guarantee Ukraine's independence. And then Ukraine should guarantee its Russian-speaking minorities uh, their rights. And the implementation, which is coming out of this Normandy format, uh, a ceasefire in Donbass in the southeast, demilitarization. Uh, some have suggested it could be enforced by a UN peacekeeping force. So the U.S. would withdraw its advisors from Ukraine and stop sending more arms to Ukraine, and Russia would withdraw its mercenaries from the Donbass. And then we should also push for international reconstruction aid for the Donbass region, which has been tore up by this war. So that, you know, is not really that hard to do. Uh, but the problem right now, from our perspective, is our government is uh, fueling the fire. And uh, I know that the Democrats are trying to fast track another half billion dollars in weapons. I didn't see that it passed. Maybe it did or maybe I missed it. But uh, that's what the uh, Democrats are pushing and the Republicans want even more. So uh, we got to we got to build this anti-war movement. Third thing is the COVID crisis. We just passed 900,000 dead from COVID in the United States this week. This week, 2,600 were dying a day. And we got the far-right Republicans fighting common-sense public health measures like masks and vaccine mandates. And the Democrats, on the other hand, are joining with the Republicans and pushing to reopen the economy without the public health protections uh, that uh, were embodied, for example, in OSHA. Those regulations, emergency regulations are going out. Uh, they are responding to business that just wants to push workers back to work, whether it's safe or not. You can see that in the reduction of the quarantine period from 10 days to five days that the CDC recommends. And there really isn't science behind that, but there is business pressure. And teachers and nurses in particular have resisted this. Um, but that's that's where we're headed. So we've got to defend uh, these frontline workers. And then meanwhile, you know, we, one of the reasons the U.S. has such a high per capita death rate is that we don't have a national health care system. We got, you know, a lot of private insurance, some public programs that cover some people. And so in California this week, the Democrats killed Singer Payer again, second time. They joined in Hawaii, Vermont, and New York in cases where the Democrats promised single payer. They got control of both chambers of the legislature and the governorship and suddenly they couldn't do it because of all this legalized bribery coming from the health insurance industry into the coffers of the Democratic Party. So that's why we need the Green Party to keep pushing for Medicare for all. Fourth crisis we need to think about is the border crisis. I mean, the cruelty going on there, it's like Stephen Miller and Donald Trump were still you know, in office. Uh, this week, the Biden administration reconfirmed their commitment to Title 42, which was a Trump-initiated policy that expels migrants without any due process for their appeal for immigration or, or asylum on the grounds of preventing COVID. So under this law, a, hundred, a million and a half migrants have been deported. I mean, 
we should just give the virus a, a, a vaccine. Um, and, you know, that's a big problem because, you know, Biden is protecting big pharma patents and profits rather than using the many authorities he has, for example, the Defense Production Act, to socialize vaccine patents in order for them to be available around the world at much lower cost so the world can get vaccinated. Because right now, COVID's running wild, evolving new variants that come back to infect the whole world, including the United States. Again, that's why we need a socialized healthcare system that puts people before profits. And then the fifth crisis, and there are more, but I'm just gonna limit it to five, is the climate crisis. Build Back Better is dead. Uh, the climate portion of it was all corporate welfare for renewable generations and electric vehicles, but no mandates, no schedule for reducing carbon emissions. All, all of it was public subsidies for private business which leaves the corporations in charge. It doesn't change who has the power, the corporations or the people. And we know that the corporations are going to put profits first. And if it's profitable to continue emitting greenhouse gases, that's what they're going to do. Even if they're getting subsidies to uh, build some renewables and electric vehicles and charging stations. Again, that's why we need the Greens pushing an eco-socialist Green New Deal, where we have public ownership and democratic administration uh, particularly in the power, transportation, manufacturing, and financial sectors, so we can make a rapid transition to 100% clean energy and zero and soon negative carbon emissions. So, you know, the Green Party needs to get its act together and really, really put these issues on the table. Which brings in our guest today, David Schwartzman. That's why we're having David. He's an emeritus professor of biology at Howard University who is focused on biogeochemistry, earth sciences, and solar energy. He's one of the leading thinkers in the world on the eco-socialist Green New Deal. He's active in the DC statehood Green Party. He's run for office with them. He's the author of the book, The Earth is Not for Sale with his son, the environmental scientist and green mayor of Galesville, Illinois. That's Peter Schwartzman. The subtitle of that book is A Path Out of Fossil Capitalism to the Other World That is Still Possible. And so I've asked David to say a few words about what that path is, how it's still feasible, uh, maybe talk about how we end energy poverty so everybody in the world has access to the highest quality of life, and just about eco-socialism generally. So well, thank you. Thank you for this uh, opportunity. Uh, and unlike my son, Peter, I never got elected, but he did, <laughs> of course, with a much smaller in a much smaller city. But uh, I'm still a um, a leader in the DC State of Green Party on many fronts. And matter of fact, I'll post in the chat an article I just did on a Green New Deal for DC, revisiting that. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to now do what Howie asked me to do. So. Uh, I actually, when he said I was a professor of biology, I was in a, a department of biology, but I'm actually a biogeochemist, an energy and climate scientist. So I'm not a biologist. Uh, there's a long story behind that, but uh, why I'm in the department of biology. But here, here's the, uh, here's the, what we have been studying, my oldest son and I in particular, for over 10 years, 
Uh, we are been modeling a transition globally to a renewable energy system. And when renewable energy, that would be most, that would be primarily wind and high efficiency collection of solar energy, which is mainly photovoltaics and concentrated solar power in desert regions. But those are really the big three. And there are, there's uh, complementary supplies from smaller sources as well. But those are the main ones. So we, we in our research, our publications have, I think, demonstrated that technically with the present technology we have, it is possible to transition in just a few decades globally. Uh, and completely terminating the consumption of fossil fuels. And let me say, since Howie mentioned, oh, uh, maybe he did in uh, before it started, nuclear power. Matter of fact, uh, we're very pro-nuclear power, but the, the nuclear power we're for is at a safe distance 93 million miles away. It is the fusion reactor in the sun. Uh, we don't need fission power on Earth, on the surface of the Earth. It is uh, unwelcome. First of all, it's very expensive. It takes too long to uh, site, and it diverts resources from other that we need to use for uh, truly a renewable energy transition. Uh, and, of course, uh, well-known risks, extreme risks from fission power as well. So uh, just wanted to mention that we are pro-solar nuclear power and we don't need to put few, we don't need to spend billions of dollars to build a fusion reactor on the surface of the earth. Again, a big diversion of resources. We should push for the uh, these resources, these funds going to site wind and solar now uh and this is as how we indicate this is an emergency the longer we wait for this transition that is a full 100 percent wind solar transition globally and termination of fossil fuels the greater the chance that we will breach the warming target of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is one and a half degrees centigrade. And that's only 0.3 degrees centigrade over the present global temperature, surface temperature. So we have little, not much time to do it. It is still possible to meet that target with a very robust transition that starts very soon. And the, uh, the our book website actually has uh, several resources, including our latest paper on this uh, modeling this transition. So you, it's full text. You can open up the link and read the paper for yourself. Uh, so uh, the feasibility is there. Again, there are huge political economic obstacles. The main one being the uh, power of militarized fossil capital globally. 
And we, of course, we see this power even in the Biden administration and certainly the blocking of a, a, a really uh, a climate-friendly um, Build Back Better with Mansion and so on blocking even that very modest uh, program. So uh, that's the enemy that we need to overcome. Now, uh, I was asked to talk about energy poverty. Well, most people in the world suffer from energy poverty. That means they are consuming too little energy to live to the highest quality of life, to the highest life expectancy that a few rich countries in the global north enjoy. Uh, Japan, matter of fact, has the highest life expectancy globally. And uh, the U.S. ranks about 40 in the world. Uh, by the way, Cuba is very close to it with m consuming much less energy, and uh, they're suffering from energy poverty too doing, as a result of the U.S. sanctions and blockade. Uh, so most of the world, people of the world suffer from energy poverty. They do not have enough energy to live to the highest life expectancy uh, that is presently enjoyed by a few countries. Uh, now, how is that energy going to be supplied? Well, renewable, because it should not be supplied by fossil fuels, which actually kills probably seven, eight million people a year just from air pollution. So uh, that's, that's the bottom line on energy poverty. And I think in the follow-up discussion, we can get into how much energy is required and so on. I think uh, Howie's particularly interested in that. Now, one major concern about a renewable energy transition is extractivism. That is extractive industries such as mining that really have big negative impacts on people around the world, especially indigenous communities. Uh, and uh, it's a very legitimate concern, but there are solutions that could minimize this and actually phase out extractivism. The biggest one is building a renewable energy infrastructure itself, because that energy will allow very efficient recycling of metals, which is not being done very, uh, now. And there is some recycling, like aluminum cans. As a matter of fact, the energy needed to uh, extract aluminum from aluminum ore, bauxite, is much greater than the energy just to melt an aluminum can down and reusing the aluminum. So there's energy savings there that actually can reduce extractivism even now, uh, extractive mining. But then we have a huge uh opportunity in a robust solar transition guided by eco-socialist uh perspective and that is to terminate not only terminate the infrastructure of the fossil fuels globally which has a lot of metals in it by the way but also the military industrial complex uh, you know, uh, military airplanes have a lot of cobalt in them. Uh, so demilitarization 
it's going to be almost uh, certainly a necessary part of a transition to this other world that's possible. Uh, and that will also free up metals that could be recycled with a, a growing uh, solar power globally. Uh, and um, that's, I think I took 10 minutes. So, or did I, <laughs> you want me to talk a little bit more about any of this? Uh, let's, let's begin the discussion. Uh, I put the resource again, our book website, theearthisnotforsale.org, and you can find our publications on that uh, website as well. Okay, well, uh, why don't you elaborate on, on the energy poverty? How much energy is needed to reach that uh, highest yes. possible life expectancy? Um and how much more energy is the U.S. using? How much? Yes. How far short is the global South? Um, you know, elaborate on that because okay. you know part of our Green New Deal is an economic bill of rights, and part of the politics of getting the Green New Deal passed is that it it meets the basic needs of people as well as uh, invest in this transition. Okay, so if you. Actually, a, uh, a Canadian geographer who's published a lot of books, Vlachov Schmill, really pioneered in looking at this issue. And he plotted graphs of life expectancy and uh, human development index versus energy consumption per person by nation. So the, a nation will have uh, a certain amount uh, level of primary energy consumption. Okay, well, I say primary because if you burn coal, for instance, a lot of that energy is waste heat and doesn't go to do work. You know, uh, so primary is a total energy to generate the energy consumption that ends up per, in the population. So the energy consumed per person is a measure. And uh, uh, we use power units, uh, and I'll explain that. Uh, the minimum energy to reach the highest life expectancy in the world today is about three kilowatt per person. Now, kilowatt is a power unit. A power equals energy consumed per time. So in one year, a person at that level of consumption would be consuming three kilowatt year of energy. Just like you pay electric bill kilowatt hours, you're paying for energy. So it's the kilowatt times, which is a power unit times the time. That's the energy unit. Uh, US is now consuming a little over nine kilowatt per person, a little over nine. Uh, very high, very wasteful consumption of energy, uh, which is expressed in many ways in our society. You know, building huge, uh, rich people building huge houses, uh, everyone driving a car everywhere instead of promoting more investment in rail and public transportation and so forth. Um, so U.S. has very wasteful consumption of energy. 
we could do very be- much better in the U.S. by consuming much less energy per person by changing the modes that we live by. And that would actually be cleaner air, cleaner soil, cleaner food, and so on. People would live better than they're living now uh, with using less energy, but it has to be planned. It has to be designed. Uh, And for example, um, as you mentioned, Howie, there is uh, in the uh, Triple B bill, there was actually a subsidy, so, uh, you know, build electric cars. Uh, you know, having hundreds of millions of electric cars instead of fossil fuel cars is not really the solution, right? You'll still have huge traffic congestion, huge resource consumption, uh, like extractivism, uh, and it's much better to put the investment into public transit. Yes, electrified public transit powered by renewable energy. That's a much better solution than, you know, the, the this alternative. Now, Cuba is consuming, according to the latest data, which is 2016, the data I just gave was 2019 for the U.S. and for the minimum, you know, globally, uh, for the highest life expectancy. Cuba is uh, consuming about one kilowatt per person. Now, Cuba does very well under its state of energy poverty, uh, basically probably tied or maybe even greater, higher life expectancy than the U.S. uh, because it has a very strong uh, public health system and education, and they prioritize that in their society, which, of course, this is not the case in the United States. Uh, So Cuba could do much better and reach a high, highest world standard life expectancy by increasing its energy consumption using clean energy, wind and solar. Uh, so the challenge in the world today really is to have a renewable energy transition that, suppl- that eliminates energy poverty and brings essentially recognizes the right of every child living in the planet to live to the highest quality of life and life expectancy. So it isn't simply to, as some degrowthists have promoted, uh, well, you know, the global South could do better with a, quote, decent standard of living which would bring them up maybe to a little below Cuba's life expectancy. Well, I find that really Eurocentric arrogance. Why should a child living in the global South uh, only live to uh, this, uh, let's say, decent life standard rather than the highest that every child uh, has a right to enjoy. And that's our responsibility in the global uh, climate and energy justice movement, really to see that to happen. Yeah, COP26 really came up short on that with the U.S. leading the resistance to what some people call climate reparations, but it's basically the way I see it, an investment in the habitability of the planet for all of us. Yes. And uh, when Biden 
claimed he was going to get to a 50% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 based on a program that had no hope of doing that. Uh, a number of environmental groups criticized him by saying, no, the U.S. share is 195%. Now, how do you get to 195%? Well, they said you cut U.S. emissions by 70%, and then you invest in this transition in the global south. For That'll get your other 125%. And that's really important. This has got to be global because more and more carbon emissions are coming from the global south because global corporations have outsourced manufacturing there. Yes. And they're building fossil fuel transportation infrastructure uh, to uh, make that manufacturing in the global south possible. So, you know, we could clean up our act and the planet will still boil. So. Um, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, and uh, people say, well, where's the, where's the money going to come from? Hello. The fact is that the IMF latest report uh, estimates that nearly $6 trillion a year go to direct and indirect subsidies to fossil fuel consumption. Direct and indirect, and that is includes, of course, all the negative health impacts of consuming fossil fuels. So that's over five trillion, between five and six trillion dollars a year. The global military budget is now close to two trillion dollars a year. So obviously, there is a uh, lack that we need to change the, the priorities of where this funding should go and that is really the challenge is to undermine and terminate the power of the fossil capital and its political instruments to make that possible and uh it, it is possible and uh we can get into strategy but uh which we have some thoughts about but this is the resources are there and let me make one other point when I said this renewable energy transition is possible even today with present technology, that this technology is getting better. It's in the near future, there will be more efficient solar photovoltaic cells that could be actually be created with less energy and uh, the same with wind power. And most wind power probably should be sited in the ocean not on land. Uh, there's tremendous resources there. I saw a recent report about South Africa that offshore wind in South Africa could actually, and South Africa actually is not suffering from energy poverty. It's above three kilowatt per person, but of course it has extreme uh, uh, wealth and income inequality, which uh, the majority is not getting the benefits and they're suffering from energy poverty. So uh, there's eight times, roughly eight times as much energy as they're presently consuming in South Africa can come from offshore wind. Uh, and uh, so the potential is, and this is why I'm an optimist in terms of technology, that this technology will only improve, get more efficient. And I should also mention, this came up in our previous discussions, uh, do you need fossil fuel to build uh, renewable energy? 
Yes, because a little less than 80% of all the energy consumed in the world today is fossil fuel. You have to start with the energy that is presently available. However, the payback from right now from present technology for wind and solar is like you get so at least 20 times as much energy from the lifetime of the technology that you need to build it, okay? So the amount of energy going into required to make the technology becomes less and less. And in our modeling that we just did in the paper I mentioned, we show that it is less about 5% of the proven reserves of fossil fuel will be needed in this transition. And that's consistent with the carbon budget that's left That's that corresponds to one and a half degree warming, okay? So uh, the that is most of the carbon has to be left in the ground. Okay, uh, you know the slogan, keep the oil in the soil? <laughs> I think it's, a, I know what it's motivated by, but it's really, it's, I always tell people on a march, you know, you know, it's a little bit crazy to say that because if you put the oil in the soil, you can't grow anything. So it's, <laughs> it's much better. Keep the oil in the crust. I know that doesn't rhyme. But most of fossil fuel has to remain in the ground. And let me uh, use this opportunity also to say what the priority should be in terms of what fossil fuel you use. What should be terminated first? Coal and natural gas. Coal and natural gas. In our modeling, we terminate in 10 years and then. We terminate conventional oil in 20 years in the full 100% renewable transition. Now, why did we do that? Because the highest greenhouse gas footprint, the highest contribution to warming per molecule, okay, of CO2 or methane is from coal and natural gas. Now, if you burn natural gas, which is mainly methane, uh, for those who have a little chemistry, it's CH4, one atom of carbon and four of hydrogen. So when you burn methane, you get a lot of energy just by oxidizing the hydrogen as well as the carbon. So it's only half the, uh, the impact of oil which is hydrocarbons. Uh, uh, it's half the impact, sorry, of coal, which is mainly carbon. And and oil is about three quarters the impact of coal. But the why natural gas is such a big greenhouse gas footprint is that it leaks directly to the atmosphere. And methane has a very potent greenhouse gas impact that molecule, it absorbs infrared much more efficiently than carbon dioxide. So it has, that's, by the way, that's just recently been highlighted in the news because they've identified by remote sensing where the real ultra 
uh, emitters are on the planet from leaking wells and blah, blah, blah. Well, that will only deal with 10% of the methane emissions, okay? So we have to terminate natural gas quickly, consumption, and terminate cause coal. Uh, and that that they, we'd have to respect climate and energy science in this eco-socialist transition. That's what's informed my research is that you've got to use the natural sciences and the physical sciences to inform an eco-socialist transition, okay, well, as well as a social. So uh, I think I should stop talking. <laughs> okay, well, we're starting to get questions in the chat, so... Oh, uh, yeah. Let, what it, I, getting to them. I just wanted to comment that yeah. the self-reproducing renewable system doesn't need fossil fuels once it's self-reproducing. Yeah. Yes. And that initial investment of fossil energy, preferably oil, is how we get there. And uh, you get a lot of people, particularly the people that push degrowth, yes. saying you need fossil fuels to build solar panels and, and wind generators. And they yeah. act like the technology uh, you know, to produce solar panels and wind generators with electricity from solar, renewable solar, is not there. But it is. And I think that's something that, that we've got to bust. And you mentioned degrowth. Um, it's really a question of what we're going to grow and what we're going to degrow. We're going to degrow yeah. fossil fuels, but we got to grow renewables if we're going to end energy poverty. So um, I hope people will keep those things in mind. Um, Can I mention there, uh, Howie? Uh, yes, that yeah, I, that's a very good clarification. In our modeling, we uh, certainly that's part of our modeling. The point is, as you build more and more renewable, then it re reproduces itself until you get to 100%, and then you don't need any other source. That's very important uh, to mention. And then as far as the degrowth, can I say a little bit about degrowth? Sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be degrown, not globally and the United States. How about the military-industrial complex? I mean, let's not only degrow it, let's terminate it. Okay, when I say industrial, we need a new industrial economy that is green, that is compatible with preserving biodiversity, which is compatible with protecting human health. So I'm not against industrialism uh, per se. And some in the degrowthers say, well, industrial society is the enemy. No, it's fossil fuel capitalism, which is the barrier. It isn't, uh, and uh, so I want to make that qualification. But but de degrowth, the main problem we have with the degrowth advocates is that they commonly say the world has to decrease its energy consumption. The world, the U.S. should decrease, but most of humanity needs more energy than it's consuming now in the form of, quote, clean energy. Uh, India, for example, is even below roughly at Cuba's level, and they have extreme wealth inequality, and they live very short lives. So people in India need more energy to achieve the highest life expectancy. And so globally, 
uh, let me give you a figure now, okay? And I'll I'll close in this thought. Um, right now, the primary energy consumption globally is 19 trillion watts. So in one year, the world consumes 19 trillion watt years of energy. Okay, remember, kilowatt hours. Okay, trillion watt years, they're both energy units. Now, if you multiply three kilowatt per person, which is the minimum to achieve the highest life expectancy, times the present world population, which is 7.9 billion people. Every time I look at the uh, Google, I get a higher number, by the way. I mean, a few years ago, it was like 7 billion. Okay, well, we got to adjust it. So if you multiply three kilowatt per person times 7.9 billion people, you get 24 trillion watts, okay? 24 trillion watt uh, as a primary energy consumption in the world in power units, which is higher than we're consuming now. So that shows that we, at least in the near term, the world is going to need more energy. Now, as the efficiency of technology improves, then you could do the same work uh, with less energy. There's an energy savings with increasing technological efficiency. And we have these estimates in our paper, in the paper I mentioned. And so that energy, that part of will decrease, but we're going to need energy in the future, very likely more energy to for climate mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation means to uh, have some impact on uh, global warming, okay? To, for instance, to reduce the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere by burying it in the crust by a chemical reaction. And there are technologies to do that now, but again, we begin with natural solutions, which can be begin now, right? Like restoring natural ecosystems, ecological agriculture, regenerative agriculture, that all will draw carbon dioxide more into the soil and store it there. Uh, however, as even with a modest small warming, that capacity will decrease. And so in our modeling, we argue that we, that we need to build sufficient renewable energy capacity to be able to address that challenge, okay, in the in the next few decades. And you we can only address that challenge with with more energy of renewable mode than we have now. That's climate protection, that's climate mitigation and adaptation, of course. We need energy for adaptation too. That's that's a uh, that's a challenge that did not exist before, right? To adapt to ongoing climate warming, which disproportionately affects the poor, which disproportionately affects people living in the global south. 
And that's going to require more energy to actually address that. Uh, for uh, give you one example, heat stress. We already see heat stress is already growing, even in the global north in cities in the U.S., right? During hot summers. Those hot summers will grow more frequently, and people living in near the equator are going to suffer extreme heat stress, even keeping the warming at the one-and-a-half degree target, warming target. That's going to be a big challenge, and that can there are solutions, but that's going to take energy to address that. And that's something degrowthists commonly ignore, okay? That yeah. challenge. I, I remember seeing a figure that one third of Salvadorans have damaged kidneys from heat stress. You oh, know, dehydration and, and dealing with the heat, particularly when they're doing agricultural work. So, you know, yeah. this is this is serious. Uh, one last point, and then let's get some questions. I just want to underscore what you said about uh, we got to cut the military-industrial complex um, when. The Democrats took the Green Party's signature issue, the Green New Deal, in 2019 and introduced a non-binding resolution to Congress. They cut out very important things like no new fossil fuel infrastructure and a ban on fracking, yes. deep cuts in military spending, and also to phase out of nuclear power and then extended the deadline to 20 years from 2030 to 2050 to get to zero, but they called it net zero, which yes. is a way of opening the door for burning fossil fuels and supposedly capturing the carbon and sequestering it. Um, and also burning waste, uh, which releases all kinds of toxics. You mentioned fossil capitalism and industrialism. It's not just the global warming, it's most of the toxic chemicals yes. that are new to the biosphere. So there are no enzymes that co-evolve to break them down and become uh, carcinogenic and mutagenic and just uh, mess with your endocrine system because they're all carbon-based molecules like life. Um, that's really, uh, since World War II in particular, now we have over 100,000 of these new chemicals, and that's out of that fossil capitalism as well. So, um, yeah, we've got we to gotta take over the energy industry and put it in the public sector. Wow. We can't leave it to these corporations to make private decisions. What we've had with the incentives we've had for renewables is yeah, they build more renewables, but they don't stop the fossils. So That's we have more energy, but we're burning as much fossil. The only reason the carbon has gone down is because there was a switch from coal to gas. But as you were explaining, when the methane is counted in with the gas that leaks from the well site and the pipelines and the compressor stations and where it's finally burned, it has the equivalent impact as coal in terms of global warming. So uh, we really haven't gained ground there. So... I, I did see a number of questions in the chat, so uh, here we go. Linda Templin asks, what is the cleanest fuel to use for a flame, i.e. for cooking? Uh, electric. <laughs> That's not a flame. <laughs> uh, wait, listen, I have to, uh, you know, I, I'm not perfect. We have a gas stove. We have gas heating in my house. we got to get it replaced with, uh, you know, a heat pump and electric. Okay, and so the cleanest—that's natural gas. It's quote cleanest, but you know there's indoor air pollution from uh, using a gas stove, nitric nitrogen oxides that are really bad, 
And there's even methane emissions they've found, significant methane emissions from just using a stove in a home because methane escapes before it's burned. <laughs> so uh, that that's a short answer to that. It's yeah, and, and that's a case where yeah. uh, we need a public program to pay the upfront capital costs that's of right. switching from gas to heat pumps and uh, electric stoves so people can start using it. And the savings, because they don't have to buy fuel all the time. Once that you know heat pump and electric stove is in there, then all you got to do is pay for the electricity. You don't have to pay for fuel. So you save. And then over time, that savings can pay back. But there needs to be public uh, financing of that. We have legislation for that uh, advancing in New York. And we have New York City has said that uh, no new building uh, can be dependent on gas. It has to be electric. And we're going for that statewide. So uh, somebody, this question will probably come up, you know, what about a local Green New Deal? There you go. That's one thing, one part of a local Green New Deal. You know, no, more, no new gas and then find yeah. some kind of public program like a public That's municipal it. utility that can finance for their customers how to get off gas. That's a very good point. Matter of fact, being in one of the leaders of the D.C. State of Green Party, uh, uh, I, I mentioned I wrote a recent article about a Green New Deal in D.C., and that's one component. There is a project in D.C. called Beyond Gas because methane is leaking right out of the streets from old pipes. Uh, and uh, people are, are, are uh, you know, concerned about what you just said about subsidizing this uh, uh, this shift. And uh, it's an environmental justice issue. It's an economic justice issue. Absolutely. Amy L. Sachs asks, Professor, is it true that all oil, that oil corporations are already plotting to drill for oil under the melting polar frost up north? Can anything be done to stop them? Thanks. Uh, I believe that didn't the court block, uh, maybe I'm wrong. There Wasn't there a recent action regarding uh, the offshore like in Alaska? My recollection is Obama okayed it, Shell tried it, and gave it up. Oh, okay. That requires some look. By the way, that's Amy Sachs. Yeah. And uh, her photo is a black cat. Uh, and I have a white cat, by the way. Maybe the two cats should get together. <laughs> but I was going to add that uh, Russia is moving ahead very aggressively. Yes. yes. They have uh, launched one barge with two nuclear reactors on it to power drilling in the Arctic Ocean. They have seven of those planned. So, again, we need a global Green New Deal. We need to find our allies in Russia, which I would argue is the Russian socialist movement. It's the closest thing to a Green Party. Right. They led the fight against highways through the Green Belt around Moscow. Yeah. But they have a hell of a time getting on ballot. They have the same problem we do. So the candidates they endorsed had to run on the Communist Party, which still has a ballot line. And, and they're uh, starting to oppose Putin, by the way, according to the latest reports. Instead of being an ally, they're actually opposing uh, uh, Putin, uh, and uh, let you know that's a good point because uh, 
uh, Russia has huge wind resources that they could use, you know, offshore. Uh, they, they have renewable energy, uh, you know, uh, potential, huge potential. But that's true. There needs to be an eco-socialist class struggle in every country, right, to generate a eco-socialist Green New Deal. And it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in pure form. It'll start, you know, with a uh, state spending money, just like the stimulus program. Many trillions of dollars were spent, created in the stimulus during the height of the pandemic, right? Uh, that could happen again in the beginnings of Green New Deal. But again, we need to push it to more and more an eco-socialist character, you know, to really make it uh, effective. Yeah, the, the Communist Party in Russia had, for a long time, you know, been pretty much allied with Putin, yeah. um, and they've had a dissident left wing. But what really pissed them off was in September, one of their candidates—he wasn't a communist; he was an independent yeah. leftist, yeah. backed by the communists, backed by the Russian socialist movement. He won an election, and then they counted the e votes, <laughs> and he lost the election. So the yeah. communists called big demonstrations. Yeah. First time, and uh, you know, I don't know where it's gone since then, but uh, you know, we need to find a way to, you know, help those folks at least, at least give them moral support, which matters a lot to people that are struggling in difficult circumstances. I know that other people around the world care about them. Any other questions? On the I don't see the questions. Uh, oh, I'm looking at the private chat. Here's another one, yeah. Okay. Eric Ray, hello, Professor Schwartzman. I'm considering running for local office here in Florida and wanted to know your opinion on what an, e an eco-socialist Green New Deal would look like on the local and state level. Okay, you know what? Uh, now I'm putting, I'll put a link of the paper I just wrote that may give some ideas on that. But very briefly, it's there's a political dimension like ranked choice voting to push for that. There's a uh, 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 economic dimensions to reduce income inequality, you know, by taxing the rich. There's environmental and energy uh, issue, you know, and which we already been talking about, like municipalizing utilities locally, uh, a public bank creating a public bank, which is a movement around the country to. I would I like to say more eco-socialism, less capitalism. That's what we could do locally, right? And uh, I'll put that uh, article in in the uh, chat that I could see while we're talking. Okay, I don't know if the viewers see that. Do they, Howie? They see the. I believe they see the questions. Oh, uh, the the chat. Like the book, yeah, and that stuff, yeah, because they talk back and forth on it. Okay, I can't see their questions though. Uh, well, under the general comments, you know, that some of them are oh. back a ways. Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't see that, but I'm gonna put on the chat the article I just did. Uh, you gotta oh. put it on the private chat for the 
moderator and she'll put it on the comments. Okay, thank you, thank you. That that's the article uh, that a long article I just did it uh, on a uh, online, uh, you know, uh, widely read uh, uh, site for people interested in DC politics. So, but that may give uh, that Eric Gray some ideas. Jay-Z asks, Professor Schwartzman, could energy poverty be driven back by ubiquitous renewables? For example, small-scale wind and solar generators scattered around communities but connected to the larger grid. Absolutely. Absolutely. Decentralized solar uh, uh, is certainly going to be an important part of that process. And again, uh, you know, it, 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 it needs to be implemented on different scales. So you're going to have big solar. You're going to have big wind farms like in the ocean, and you have a lot of uh, decentralized renewables that are, could, again, controlled by the local community and managed by the local community. Absolutely. That's part of an eco-socialist uh, program for renewables, definitely. And as you mentioned, Howie, you know, we need to nationalize energy. But at the same time, we have to decentralize the control as well and management of the local systems. And that's being already underway, just like agroecology all over the country, you know, urban farms and so on. Yeah, in our campaign, we, we put forward a model of uh, a national publicly owned energy system that was controlled from the bottom up so that you have, you know, local public energy districts municipals right. uh, that elect boards publicly and then those boards elect representatives to state and national uh, coordinating boards so that the control is from the bottom up and the detailed planning is made at the local level where you know it's really important that be done you know citing these renewables is a big issue in getting them implemented so um, it needs to be a bottom-up democratic system and uh Another thing, and David and I had an email exchange about this earlier in the week. Um, the not only do you have to have the decentralized generation from wind and solar, you got to have a grid that connects them. And there's yeah. studies that say we need about six hundred billion dollars in investment to build that grid that can handle the renewables. And it's not being made, and you get this uh, chicken and the egg problem where. Companies that want to build renewables hold back because they don't think the grid can handle it. And the owners of the grid won't build it till they wear out the grid they got. So, uh, and, and they don't see the demand from the renewables. So like, who's going to take the first step? That's why you need public planning. So this can be coordinated. And there was some money in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, 65 billion, about a 10% of what we need. And Build Back Better added another, I think it was 9 billion which is a drop in the bucket. So that's something people need to keep in mind when they're looking at their state plans. I mean, like in here in New York, we're going big on offshore, but is can the grid handle it? And uh, it's not clear they've committed to the investments. The, it's called the independent system operator, New York independent system operator knows about the problem, but they don't have the money to build the grid. They, they're saying they need to build some new transmission lines. So. That's something to keep in mind when you work on your state and local Green New Deals. 
Uh, let me mention, Howie, that I'll share with you on email. Uh, I can't find it right now, but there was a recent article about new software that's been developed to make uh, this uh, grid, uh, you know, uh, more compatible with solar easier than previously. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, research and development that I think it's it's analogous to what's going on in the technology itself to make the renewable energy technologies even more efficient. Even, you know, uh, thin film photovoltaics are being worked on which could be it could be a radical revolution in photovoltaic technology that would make this transition much easier okay yeah i i may have seen an article you're going to send me if it was about new york because okay. it would you know it would basically remove the need for some of these transmission lines cuz yeah. they can handle more efficiently the electricity they've got and new electricity they would add right. from renewables and it's been they modeled it in New York, but they've actually implemented it someplace like Denmark. I can't remember that. So it was a European firm that did that. So you're right. You know, the technology, uh, I'm, I'm an optimist like you are. The technology is moving our direction and we just got to make sure we use, make the right choices. The problem now is the corporations choose the technologies and we don't get a say. It's like, how did we get the nuclear, you know, Truman was worried that we we're going to run out of oil, so he formed the Paley Commission. <laughs> and it reported back during the Eisenhower administration and said, we should go solar. <laughs> but Eisenhower said, we're going nuclear because we need a peaceful atom to legitimize our nuclear weapons. And, <laughs> you know, the consumers didn't decide that in the market. The public didn't decide that through their representatives in government. It was a top-down decision by people in the military industrial complex. So that's why we need eco-socialism. Uh, George Rings, as we look back on the prominent IPCC reports, if they were wrong, is it in underestimating climate change effects? Do you think that is still a problem with current models and forecasts? Um, look, um, there may be some, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a good question. There's certainly been a pattern of that. However, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, in the climate science field and activists, you know, become more on top of what's going on there in the modeling. And uh, so they're looking at it more critically. And I think uh, the... And for instance, in the paper we just produced, we used a very uh, recent assessment of, you know, what the carbon budget is remaining, and there's uncertainty there. So the really, the way to address this is the precautionary principle, okay? So we need to build, we need to terminate fossil fuels faster and build renewable faster at the same time and 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 have the energy capacity to deal with the uh challenge of the the high level of co2 in the atmosphere and pull it out if necessary which will probably be necessary so we need to apply the cautionary principle there it's a very good question 
Yeah, and I, one thing people should realize is those reports have to be approved by the governments of the world, including the petrol states, which would be the United States, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and so forth. And so they, they have a conservative bias built in. And I think uh, the most recent reports, I mean, the science, the modeling's got clearer despite the uncertainties like the one you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and it becomes harder to, you know, basically say what the science can't let you say. Um, I think one thing people need to look at, the part three of the sixth assessment report, the latest IPCC report, has a line in there that a lot of scientists think this is basically rooted in the capitalist system, which is, you know, erratic and, uh, you know, grows without any sense of limits. And whether that line survives when the report is finalized will give you some indication as to how much the government's messed with what the scientists wrote. So we, we got the report leaked. I think some French uh, people got it leaked, uh, you know, in the late fall. And uh, the report is due, I believe, in February. So we'll, we'll see what they what the final report says and if that line is still in there. Uh, that's a good, that's interesting. I think I've seen that. I think it was some Spanish uh, writers that put out degrowthists. And I critique that, actually. They are a take on it. But, uh, however, we should not go to the other extreme to say, oh, well, uh, catastrophic climate change is inevitable. All we should do is create, be prepared for it, you know, and and basically degrow. And uh, there was a recent review of the book from extinction, some people from Extinction Rebellion uh, on climate and capitalism website on this, a very recent review, which was very critical of that view. And I share that critique that to say, you know, uh, we're, you know, it's inevitable. We can't do anything. Let's just prepare for the catastrophe. That I think is a massive cowardly uh, position that uh, doesn't, uh, confront the remaining possibility that we do have to keep the warming at least to one and a half degree. And, uh, you know, I invite people to look at it critically and look at what the real science is telling us on that. I believe that there is still an opportunity and uh, we should seize it. We owe it to our children and grandchildren of the world to, to uh, seize this opportunity and not accept defeat. Yeah, that's a huge debate now in Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, the old guard calls it climate adaptation and the, yeah. the younger, more radical people are saying, no, we want climate justice. That's right. So, exactly. You know, that's a it's probably a good thought to begin to end here because we're over the hour. Oh, and, and my wife wants us to go out for a walk before the sun sets. Yeah, <laughs> well, we try to keep these to about an hour or so. I appreciate this. It was really a chance to, uh, you know, examine some really important issues. And I love your f the five crises that you started with. I think uh, you did a really good job on that. Is there any last points you want to make before we end? Um, I would just say that, um, as a, you know, I taught at Howard University for 39 years, and I told my students, don't believe anything I say. Do the research yourself and, and challenge. 
and and that's what I say to the audience: do the research, and but beware of social media that gives you uh, fake news. <laughs> Let's put it that way, you know, uh, because there's a lot of that uh, stuff out, uh, particularly around COVID pandemic. Uh, so that's my um, my closing thoughts. And uh, I, does everyone have my email? on the chat dschwartzman at gmail.com and I'd be happy to correspond with anyone that wants to continue this discussion okay that's great I, you know my last thought uh, you know kind of follows up on what you were saying about um, and it, I sort of escaped my mind but uh, ah I lost the point. What was your point? <laughs> I made a, I made more than one. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, oh, climate, uh, climate justice, not just climate adaptation. Well, that that's what you were closing. Oh, on. I know what it was. Yeah. It was it was about the fake news, and oh. I, I was going to remind people if they haven't read uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists' explanations as to why they've got the uh, doomsday clock, 100 seconds to midnight. Yes. You're looking at three things. Of course, nuclear weapons, we're in a new nuclear arms race, the climate crisis. And what's interesting is they talk about disinformation, misinformation on social media that has got people so confused, they don't know what to believe. So they can't, it's harder to, you know, build consensus around demands on our governments. So that's a huge issue. So I, I would just underscore to people, um, don't just rely on the sources that you trust for whatever reason, maybe good reasons, but get a little bit into the weeds so you can explain it to your, you know, your grandmother or, you know, uh, a 12 year old child. And I think when you, when you, when it's at that level, you really understand it. I think that's kind of a measure. So I, I like what David said about, uh, you know, don't, don't just believe what we say. Check it out for yourself. So uh, with that, I'll just say, you know, protect yourselves. We got a new COVID variant now, one, 1. 1.3 to 1. 1.5 times more transmissible than Omicron. So we're not out of the woods. So please take care of yourself. And we'll see you next week.